Welcome to episode 74. Today, the highly revered Dr. Jim Knight joins us to talk about instructional coaching. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. The role of a language specialist is distinct from that of an instructional coach. However, there are a lot of similarities between the two roles. He is a research associate at the University of Kansas Center for Research on Learning and the president of the Instructional Coaching Group. I've really enjoyed watching so many webinars by Dr. Jim. You can find him on YouTube as well. Trust me. You will want to listen to this episode twice and share it with your fellow language specialists because he speaks to the heart of our work, which is teacher collaboration. Now, on to today's podcast. With me today is the great honor of having uh, Dr. Jim Knight from University of Kansas here. Uh, to talk about two things, to talk about learning maps and also to talk about instructional coaching as part of our job. So, uh, Jim, would you introduce yourself to the listeners? Um, first off, thanks for uh, having the conversation. I'm grateful for the chance just to talk about these things. And um, I have been a researcher at the University of Kansas for about 20 years. And, um, I suppose my main work has been studying, developing and studying instructional coaching. We've uh, uh, conducted about 23 years of research now on what instructional coaching looks like and how to do it most effectively. And we keep learning every day. So the research continues. You're at the Center for Research and Learning at, at University of Kansas. And the thing that you're really known for is instructional coaching. And that's part of our work. Uh, with teachers of language learners. Now we're moving moving towards an inclusion model where we're co-teaching and co-planning and co-assessing with teachers now. And a lot of that is very similar to the instructional coach's role. What are the rec what are like top three recommendations that you have for teachers in this role of an instructional coach? Well, I would say there's sort of four uh, bubbles. If you sort of visualize a Venn diagram, Yes. There's four overlapping bubbles. And um, and I have a blog, radicallearners.com. And uh, if anybody goes to that blog, there are tons of free resources to help with these four things. So the first bubble, you know, we've done more than 20, I think it's 23 years of research now in instructional coaching. And we, yeah. uh, on the website, instructionalcoaching.com slash research, you can, download many of the studies, we found that when we looked at student engagement before and after coaching, the effect size was 1.02 on uh, student engagement. That's a really high effect size. Wow. Um, we've done other studies where we um, 
had observers look at changes in teaching practice, and it was pretty dramatic. And those are uh, studies that were peer reviewed either through the, where they were published or at the American presented at the American Educational Research Association. So they at least met some low standard, at least maybe high standard of high standards, what all yeah. the research looks like. So they're real research, and we keep doing real research. Um, so the first bubble is uh, kind of got distracted there. The first bubble is a way of being. How do we um, how do we approach each other in a way that decreases the likelihood of resistance? In fact, it eliminates resistance. Wow. And so that's what we call the partnership approach. And the partnership approach essentially is seeing the other person as an autonomous human being, a professional who can make their own decisions for themselves. They're going to make their own decisions anyway, but it's acknowledging that. So treating that as a person who is, uh, I'm not better than that, <laughs> excuse me, we're equal, they have, a, they have a voice in the whole conversation, I, I encourage them to speak and I position them as a partner and we engage in a dialogical interaction. That's the way of being we describe. We did a study on the partnership approach where we compared two different workshops, one from the partnership approach, one a more directive fidelity approach. Mm -hmm. and. Um, there was a difference of like four and a half. I think it was 58 to 13 uh, in terms of people who chose the partnership. The second bubble um, would be that you have to have a coaching process. And uh, for the last 10 years, we've used the kind of research called lean design research to continually refine our process. And so the impact cycle is what we've arrived at is our process. And the impact cycle during the impact part, uh, or excuse me, during the identify part, the first part of the cycle, there's three parts. Um, you identify a clear picture of reality, identify a goal, and you identify a strategy to hit the goal. And it's in that order. Uh, we think you have to get a clear picture of reality first and then set the goal. Yeah. Uh, because often people um, don't have a really crystal clear picture of reality. The second part, learn, is really all about helping the person prepare to implement. And so we say a coach needs an instructional playbook. That's a, that's a document they create that, that uh, summarizes the key strategies. They know, basically we were saying a coach has to know the strategies they share really well have to have a deep knowledge. And so during the learning stage, I explain the strategy. Often I have a checklist that uh, gives focus to our conversation, but I say to the teacher, no, we can modify this and adapt it and we can do it now. And as the, as the, cycle continues we can keep changing it so it works for you individually we can adapt it to your needs but here's a starting point here's a precise explanation and then the teacher needs to see it maybe we go watch another teacher maybe we look at the video maybe we co-teach maybe i come in the classroom and model it you know but somehow the teacher sees it hears about it and during the learning stage the outcome i want is um they're ready to implement the strategy they're going to use to hit what we would call a student focus goal, either an engagement goal or, a, or an achievement goal. Then in the improvement stage, we've got this goal. The teacher's told us it really matters to him or her. It's an emotionally compelling goal to the teacher. And chances are it's not going to work the right way the first time. So we have to make adjustments, make it, uh, adaptations. So we might change the strategy or make change how we teach the strategy. Or we might modify the goal or how we measure progress towards the goal, or we might just wait. But eventually, uh, with adaptations, we'll get to the goal. So that's it, we identify. At the end of the identify stage, the teacher has a student-focused goal that, that really matters to them, and we're gonna help them hit that goal. 
At the end of the learning stage, teachers ready to implement. And at the end of the approved stage, we together have developed adaptations, mostly the teacher, until the goal is hit. That's the process. So one part of the Venn diagram is the way of being. Second thing is a process. The third thing, uh, third circle on our Venn diagram is coaching skills and coaching habits. And so that's about the way you listen and the way you ask questions and the way you paraphrase and clarify, the way you notice what the other person's doing. And, um, and, uh, it's pretty hard to be a really great coach and not be a pretty good listener. Yes. And just to take, li take listening, for example, you know, we don't complete the sentence. We don't interrupt the person. We, we leave a little silence at the end of the question after we, after the person is talking to make sure they don't have more things to say. Our body language shows that we're attentive. We're watching their body language. We're not doing distracting things. We're all in and we're creating, as my friend Christian Van Uerberg says, a safe space for the person to think. Mm. And then the fourth circle is uh, strategic knowledge. So an instructional coach knows something about effective instruction. I've got a, a book, High Impact Instruction, where the learning maps are, but you know, there's Doug Lamoff's Teach Like a Champion, there's John Sethier's Skillful Teacher, uh, Art and Science Teaching by um, Bob Marzano. All of those books offer lots of suggestions. And of course, there's tons of individual books like say champs by randy sprick that talks about classroom management or um johnson and johnson's work on cooperative learning so there are lots and lots of things you can do so the coach knows those things a small number of things and the coach also knows how to gather data so that the goals can be set and measured toward so you can measure progress towards the goals. so the four circles again are uh, a way of being positioning the teacher as a partner a process that's going to allow for the setting of emotionally compelling and powerful goals for students, then helping them hit the teacher hit those goals. Um, coaching skills, but the way you do coaching interactions, and then uh, strategic knowledge, which is really about instruction and gathering data. And those are those four circles pretty much represent instructional coaching. I'm so impressed because you, you just gave us a process of how to do this. So I'm drawing it as you're talking and they really do overlap. They really support the teachers. And I loved how you started with a way of being and like creating that safe space for that. It's, it's relational instead of transactional because we often, when I started, when I started co-teaching, I would always focus on the process. Okay. Tell me the goal. Tell me what you want. Like, what are you going to do? It wasn't just, it wasn't starting with the relationship first and that and i noticed that first part of your circle is starting with the relationship and then you moved into a really clear uh, process where you identify the goal uh, or identify the reality first the goal and then the strategy um, and then you talked about the last rule i really never thought about the improvement part where um, it's part of the process my process but i never really thought about as an integral part of the four what what have teachers said when you presented this? Well, we mostly present to coaches. Um, and uh, um, I mean, I think the, you know, the research is pretty tight. And, um, we've spent a long time refining the process. Yes. So like I think it's doable. And, um, you know, uh, our response almost always is really positive. The coaches say, okay, now I understand how to do it. Yeah. And I don't feel like this is the recipe 
I feel like it's a structure, yes. but the structure, I can tailor it to each individual teacher. Yes. Um, and I think people, people feel the importance of positioning another teacher as a partner, yes. not telling them what to do, but working things out with them. And yes. when you're using the partnership approach and the other elements of what I said, you can feel this is right. This, this yes. is going well. Yes. This person wants to meet with me. It's energizing. We're making progress. And when you're not working from the partnership perspective and you're going to, let me tell you that I've used the tool in this test your class. Now let me tell you what you need to work on. When you take that approach, you can feel it's not right. Yeah. You know, the, the teacher resists. When you were talking about uh, positioning as a partner, I wrote down when teachers say no, uh, I always say, okay, that I hear not yet. And when teachers say maybe, that means like, oh, show me what you mean. And when teachers say yes, I hear, let's do it together. Let's co-create this. And that's what you were saying in, in the beginning where well, my, my approach was here, do this. Now your approach is, is recommending that let's do this together. And that just makes a difference. Cause it's really, it's really instead of saying, you don't know anything. Let me let me pour a strategy into you. It's saying you know a lot. What do you want to achieve? Let's do this together. That's really respectful. Yeah, we would say we want to help the teacher um, by getting a clear picture of current reality and by just going through coaching conversations. Identify a goal that really really matters to the teacher. Yes. We want the thing after we've set the goal. We want it to be the thing they think about when they drive home or what wakes them up in the middle of the night. And uh, once we've got that thing, uh, that goal that really matters, and it needs to be one that's going to make a difference for kids, a powerful goal that is compelling, and we would say a student-focused goal. Once we've got that goal, then there's nothing, resistance doesn't make sense, because what I'm, all I'm doing is helping the teacher hit their goal. Right. So right. resistance only happens when I'm trying to get you to do something. Right. But actually, what I'm trying to do in our approach is I'm trying to help you hit the goal you want. Right. So it's kind of like... Um, if the person's hungry and I'm feeding them, there usually is some resistance. <laughs> you know, it's like you're giving me what I need. And that's what the coach, it's really an act of service yes. uh, to provide the support to teachers. It's not, well, let me force myself on you, you know. But at the same time, um, it's not just being soft yes. or let's just do the nice thing. I think when you position the teacher as a partner, you get the most powerful impact on student um, performance. And that's what our research would say. An effect size of 1.02 is pretty high. Um, and uh, it feel, people like the quick fix. They want to know, just give me three things I need to do and I'll go in and do it and I'll fix the problem. But usually the quick fix takes you back to the problem. And you need a more adaptive model of change to really make a difference. Can you give us a context of what 1.02 is? Oh, by the way, I noticed that you're actually implementing exactly what you're re recommending by saying like, listen, Give them space to answer. Because I know that you're doing that to me, and I just like to talk, and I always want to interrupt, but you're doing that. You're just like waiting. And it sounds like quiet, like awkward silence, but you're, I, I can tell that you're actually just waiting to see if I have more things that I'm going to ramble on. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> I could be just drinking coffee. <laughs> or you could be. You don't have the video on. It's okay. Right. Good, good intentions. Can you tell us about 102, like the effect size of 102? So the effect size is a measure of looking at the impact you have. And uh, researchers say 
um, um, that a statistically significant effect size is 0.15. Um, now, John Hattie is uh, the one who's kind of popularized the notion of effect size. Yes. Although Bob Marzano used it before him, and you know, John would be the first to acknowledge that. Yes. But um, but John says an effect size of less than 0 0.40 is irrelevant because he said just students should naturally grow over a year 0 0.40. Now John's work is on engage is on achievement, and it's a little different if you're focused on engagement. And um, we're doing other studies as well right now, trying to look at engagement or achievement. But um, there's a paper I did for Learning Forward um, in December of last year that talks about why you should do engagement. So I won't go into that, but people can look up the thing. But um, he would say uh, effect size needs to be higher than 0 0.40. And when you get up to 0 0.55, 0 0.60, you've really got something pretty powerful. And an effect size of 1.02 is a pretty high effect size. Now, we had a pretty small sample of teachers, and more studies need to be done to show the same kind of changes, but um, it was pretty powerful. And that paper, though, if people want to read the research, they can just go to the instructionalcoaching.com slash research, and it's one of the top papers. Mm -hmm. And the first author is uh, David Knight, not Jim Knight. And the reason, I guess, why it's so powerful, it's really because teachers coming together with their own skill sets, with their own expertise, but together they're building building on their skill sets to help their kids. It's I guess it's going back to your idea of like resistance. Like you're not people aren't resisting the uh, when you are coming together partnering for kids. And uh, and I really appreciate when you talk about remember it's not about trying to get them to do what you want them to do. It's trying to figure out what they want and supporting them. And I like how you talked about. It's not really being about about being soft. How do we not be soft when we still uh, focus on uh, the way of being partnering with teachers? I don't know. If, I mean, I use the word soft. I don't know if that's the right word. I mean, uh, I want to do everything in my power to um, have a, a conversation that we both walk away from feeling better for having had the conversation. Mm. Yeah. So I want I want us to speak openly and honestly and respectfully. Maybe one way to put it is this. One person who's really influenced my thinking because I think he writes really well about dialogue is Paulo Freire. And in his book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he talks about conditions for dialogue, okay, okay. with dialogue being the way of conversation that we would say instructional coaches use. We don't know about instructional coaches, but he said it's a mutually humanizing kind of conversation. And he said three conditions for dialogue are these ones. The first one is humility. Yes. If I show up full of myself and arrogant and try to force myself on other people, um, it diminishes the other person and nobody likes it and it sucks the air out of the room and there's really no opportunity to, for learning. It's either yes or no. I'm going to show up, I'm going to tell you what you're right. You know. <laughs> the second thing is faith, which is that I, for him, which means I communicate that I believe in you. I'm on your side. I'm not moralistically judging you and telling you you're a bad person. I'm affirming you, but I want you to know we can do this. I believe in you. We can make this happen. And it has to come through authentically, not some little happy, uh, trivial thing, but there's this genuine sense. Same thing with teachers and students. Some teachers really communicate they believe in the kids and the kids just take off. Yes. And then the third condition is uh, he, he uses the word love, which is kind of a 
uh, term it can be used in a lot of different ways. What he means is we have an attitude of benevolence towards the other person. We want what's, we truly want what's best for that person. And what Freire says is when we approach other people with humility and we communicate that we really believe in them and they can tell we truly want what's best for them. We're on their side, we're rooting for them. He, he says, trust will follow. And when you have trust, then learning is gonna take place. But he says, if any of those things are missing, if I show up as arrogant versus I want to force my opinion on you, I don't care about what you have to say, or um, I don't really believe in you. In fact, I kind of, you can tell in my body language, I think you're pretty incompetent. Or I don't really care what you think. I'm only worried about looking good as a coach, or I'm only worried, which I've never really met any coaches who feel that way. Let's just say hypothetically. Or um, I don't care what you think. I'm only worried about kids. Um, course we're worried about kids but we need to worry about the teachers too so if any of those things are missing trust isn't there and without trust not much learning yeah. okay well all to say uh that i don't know that that's soft but that's a that's the kind of conversation we want where at the end of it we feel like oh this is a really good use of my time uh this person has helped me move closer to my my goal now of course the other things are important uh, the coach has to have some tools to help the teacher hit the goal and has to know how to set and measure progress towards the goal has to have a process that we can move through adaptively and so forth. But, but, uh, but if that, if that relationship is there, the rest is going to follow. So long as you have the other, the other knowledge. Uh, when you said soft and then you started reframing it into the three levels of the three aspects of dialogue and you said humility, faith, and love, I wrote down, um, it's not about being soft. It's maybe strong convictions, gentle approaches. And when we have humility, when we have faith, and we and we we come with te come to teachers with a sense of benevolence, like oh, we're all here for our kids together. Uh, it just makes them want to work with us. I guess we're planting the seeds of relationship. This is such a powerful. You, I guess, listeners are listening right now, and you don't write for language learners in particular, but everything you're saying directly relates to our practice and our craft. So thank you so much. This is fantastic. We, we would say you balance uh, telling with asking. Yes. And so uh, the way we do that is we let go of the need to be right to do what's right. Ugh. So we can, we can clearly describe our stuff. We can say, oh, this is what I think should happen in my experience with other people. But, but you know your kids better than I do, and you know your strengths as a teacher, so you may want to do it a different way. And we ask for permission. We say, is it okay with you if I share some thoughts I've got? And, yes. and we really want the teacher to make a decision because we feel if they don't make a decision, if they just do what we tell them, a little later on they're going to say, I did that thing you said that didn't work. They won't have any ownership. So, so we say clearly what we think, but we say it tentatively in the sense of it's almost like a question. What do you think about this idea? This is what I've seen. You tell me how you see it. And it's not a manipulation. It's a genuine question. We really want to think together. Right, right. I often share with teachers, I say, in addition to that idea, would you consider that da, 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 or how about we consider that? Da, da, da. So it's always never saying it's like an improv where we never say no. We say yes. And so in addition to this, right. let's do that. So. That's where I find it helpful to say, can I ever, you know, is it OK with you if I share some thoughts I've got about this? And then I say, now, look, I could be wrong. You know your kids better than I do. 
And what works in one class might not work in another class. But here's something that I've been thinking about. When I work with other teachers, this is what I've seen. That's kind of how I would approach it. Yes, you should. And if the teacher says, if the teacher says, no, I think with my kids I need to do that, I don't get into trying to talk them into it. I just go, well, we've got a goal. We can try it. Let's see what happens. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't silence myself, but I don't feel the need to control. You know, I let go of the need for control. This is such a affirming, helpful conversation. Because I feel like I'm being coached to this as well. Because I feel <laughs> <laughs> being Asian, we, we don't like conflict. Well, I can't really say that blankly. I don't like conflict. And so maybe that's influenced by my culture. But uh, when you said, oh, I don't silence myself, I've, I'm reflecting on my practice. And I often say, okay, I silence myself. And what you're saying is, what you're giving me a sentence frame. You're really giving us sentence frames to say, let's, let's continue this conversation in a different way. And so this is so great. Jim. You've, we, I can tell by the way that you're talking and presenting that you've done this for years and decades and you've researched this. And then you've really refined the way, the collaborative, collaborative language. This is so amazing. Can I end with, I'm sorry, you want to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I've had a lot of great teachers. <laughs> so, yes. so I've learned from an awful lot of people. So. We stand on shoulders of giants and they're always teachers. That's right. Like it, right. And I'm, I'm standing That's on, right. I just discovered you, I would say about a month ago when uh, MJ shared this with me, she's like, oh yes, high impact teaching. You need to buy this book. And then I said, well, why don't I interview you for the podcast? And now I'm like, oh, you have all these books. My summer reading is going to be filled at the beach to be with you. <laughs> Let's end. <laughs> it's going to be a pleasant read. Don't worry. Um, Let's, I always end my podcast with this. I have a metaphor. It's called uh, traffic light teaching. And there are three, three answers that I'd like you to provide. One is red. What are the things that you ask teachers to stop doing or abandon? And then the yellow is what do you ask teachers to maybe start questioning in their practice to so slow down and start questioning. And the green is what are the things that you say? Yes, do this as much as possible. So I would say maybe I'll change it to coaches if that's okay. Yes, please. So, so I think coaches should stop giving advice. Um, stop <laughs> telling people what to do. Doesn't mean they don't share their ideas. Yes. Doesn't mean that they share them. And so the yellow part would be to share share their ideas in um, a dialogical way. And we'll blog about that on the Radical Learners blog. Just you know to say here's something I've been thinking. Um, I guess another yellow thing I, I think that's really important is you have to um, you have to master a coaching process of some sort that you can move through. Yes. And then the, the green is like, go for it, do more of it. Is that what the green is? Yes, the, yes, do more of that. So I would say do, do more, not that people aren't already doing this, but do more of moving away from moralistic judgment towards affirmation. Yeah. Just to say, when you sit down with this teacher, does this teacher feel um, that I believe in them? And if not, change things because they can tell. They can tell what you think. They'll pick it up in your nonverbal communication. And if you're rolling your eyes, as Michael Fullen says, and there's many ways you can roll your eyes without mm -hmm. using your eyes. <laughs> yes. If you're rolling eyes at another person and they feel judged, they're going to struggle. It's a hard job to teach. And so yes. they, need, they need somebody who's on their side who believes in them. And so I, I think we need more of that. 
I used to say that um, the, my motto was judgment is the worst form of collaboration, and that sounded judgy too. So I changed it to <laughs> <laughs> judgment is the first cut in a relationship. Jim, you've been so, so kind and gracious with your time. I know that you just have so much to do. We're working with teachers, working with professors, working with coaches, yet you give your time up for kids you will never meet. And particularly now in this context, it's though you talked about coaches, you really are talking to teachers of language learners. And though you talked about uh, learning maps as just a way to frame curriculum, that's such a powerful way to help kids, help teachers be clear with language learning. So your, your impact is just widespread and deep reaching. So thank you so much for this. Hey, thank you, Kylie. Take care. Have a great, have a great uh, rest. Have a great weekend. We're coming up on the weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye, Jim. All right. Bye bye. All the best. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Jim highlights four things all instructional coaches have to do. These four things are very applicable to our work with teachers. One, the partnership approach. We have to acknowledge the expertise of our colleagues. Two, instructional process. We need a process to identify how we're going to co-plan and co-teach with our colleagues. Three, communication skills. We need to be mindful of our body language, eye contact. We need to be active listeners. We need to paraphrase and we need to use non-evaluative language. Four, instructional knowledge. We need to possess specific language development strategies and understanding of language development. I know that sometimes we collaborate with teachers who are resistant. Jim addresses that by talking about three conditions for productive dialogue taken from the pedagogy of the oppressed. One, we need to have humility. Two, we need to be non-judgmental. And three, we need to be benevolent, which means we want the best for our colleagues. Together, these three conditions produce a sense of trust and the space for us to have productive discussions about our practice and what we need to do for our students. Another thing that I really appreciated about what Jim said was, we need to let go of trying to convince our colleagues or to try to change their mind on something. He said, listen, we come together with a goal, we try it out, if it doesn't work, we change our approach. But we spend so much time wasting our energy trying to convince our partners of changing their minds. In a way, trying to change someone's mind is dismissing them. Jim's interview emphasized the relational nature of our work as language specialists. We must earn our colleagues' trust before we are able to collaborate. I will leave you with Sir Kent Robinson's quote. 
We cannot force a seed to grow. We can only create the conditions for growth. On behalf of your language learners, keep on creating the rich conditions for growth because when adults don't play nice, students ultimately pay their greatest price. In the show notes, I've linked to several articles that we mentioned in the podcast. And also I wrote an article about the fundamentals that we can learn from instructional coaches for language specialists, which will also be in the show notes. In the next episode, we'll have the creators of Ready, Set, Co-Teach join us to share about their journey of code teaching. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.